America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on America's ally, Israel. Today's guest, Yar Lapid, was a journalist and author before entering Israeli politics in 2012. He founded the Yesh Atid Party, a moderate centrist party in an increasingly polarized Israeli political environment. In 2013, Mr. Lapid was appointed Minister of Finance and member of the Security Cabinet and served on the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee as well as the Subcommittee on Intelligence and Security Services. Mr. Lapid has served as the leader of the opposition since May 2020. Mr. Lapid's voice in Israeli politics appeals to many who are dissatisfied with trends in politics toward ideological extremes and the alignment of political parties with religious sects or individuals. The idea of establishing a Jewish state gained momentum after World War I with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Britain vowed to create a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, but that declaration contradicted French and British promises to others in the Middle East. Britain ruled Palestine under the League of Nations mandate, and Jewish and Arab societies lived under parallel governance and education systems. The 1920s and 30s were marked by riots, strikes, and revolts, as Jews and Arabs contended for control of what Jews, Muslims, and Christians regard as Holy Land. The Zionist movement initiated in the late 19th century with the purpose of bringing back all Jews to Israel to form a Jewish national state gained urgency with the rise of anti-Semitism and Nazism in Europe, and especially the Nazi genocide against Jews during the Holocaust. After World War II, a united national resolution declared that Palestine would be split into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. Israel declared independence on May 14, 1948, and U.S. President Harry S. Truman recognized the provisional government 11 minutes later. The next day, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and Syria invaded. That first Arab-Israeli war lasted 13 months. Peace remained elusive. After the Arab-Israeli War of 1956, UN peacekeepers began to patrol the border of Israel and Egypt. A special relationship between the United States and Israel deepened as tensions between Israel and its neighbors increased. In June 1967, as Egypt, Syria, and Jordan mobilized their armed forces, and threatened to wipe Israel out, Israel launched preemptive air and ground offenses. Israel gained control of the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and parts of the Suez Canal from Egypt, Jerusalem and the west bank of the Jordan River Valley from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. After all parties signed the UN-brokered ceasefire, a subsequent UN resolution called for the Arab states to accept Israel's right to exist, and for Israel to withdraw from occupied territories. 
the United States increased its aid to Israel as diplomats tried to find a path to peace. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union increased military assistance to Egypt. In 1973, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for Jews, a reformed Egyptian military combined with Syrian forces for a surprise attack. Catching the Israelis off guard, the Arabs had initial success. But Israel counterattacked, reversed gains in the Gaza and the Sinai, and continued offensives into Syria and Egyptian territories. After another ceasefire, the United States stepped up mediation efforts and assumed the role as honest broker between Israel, the Palestinians, and the Arab states. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter mediated the Camp David Accords to establish peace between Israel and Egypt. It was the first agreement between Israel and any Arab nation. Others would follow. Israel-Palestinian relations have followed an erratic cycle of unrest, violence, negotiations, and incomplete agreements. The day after Israelis celebrate Independence Day, Palestinians commemorate Nabka Day, or the Great Catastrophe of the 1948 War, during which an estimated 700,000 Palestinians fled and hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages were depopulated and destroyed. These refugees and their descendants number several million people today, divided between Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. Whether the descendants of Palestinians who suffered displacement Dispossession and dispersal of the Palestinian people should enjoy the right of return is, along with the future of Jerusalem, among the most emotional and formidable obstacles to enduring peace between Israel and the Palestinians. The Arab League formed the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1964 to represent the Palestinian people with the absolutist aim of liberating all of Palestine through armed struggle. Because the PLO refused to accept the right of Israel to exist, the United States and Israel considered the PLO a terrorist organization. During the First Intifada from 1987 to 1993, the PLO combined protests with terrorist attacks and suicide bombings. The 1993 Oslo Accords temporarily ended the violence between the parties. Palestinians renounced terrorism and recognized Israel's right to exist. Israelis would allow limited Palestinian authority, self-governance in portions of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Subsequent agreements have resulted in some cooperation but little progress on Palestinian sovereignty. Other setbacks include the terrorist organization Hamas's displacement of PA governance in Gaza and frequent rocket attacks from Gaza into Israeli territory and Israeli retaliation. The situation on Israel's borders has remained far from static. From the Israeli invasion and occupation of southern Lebanon in 1982, conflicts associated with the Lebanese civil war in the 1980s, Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000, and a second Lebanon war in 2006. Today, clashes on Israel's borders include preemptive and retaliatory strikes against Iranian facilities in Syria, connected to Hezbollah in Lebanon as well as threats that emanate from Hamas-controlled Gaza. In December 2017, the United States recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and soon thereafter recognized the former Syrian Golan Heights as part of Israel. In 2018, the Palestinian leadership cut its communications with the United States and suspended its recognition of Israel, halting security and economic cooperation. 
In late 2020, the Trump administration brokered the Abraham Accords as Israel normalized relations with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and later Morocco and Sudan. The Abraham Accords were spurred by the recognition that Israel shares security interests with its Arab neighbors, such as the need to counter Iran's support for proxies such as Hezbollah in Lebanon and many other terrorist and militias across the Middle East. We welcome Mr. Lapid during a time of transition in the United States as the Biden administration crafts its policy toward Israel and the Middle East, and in Israel, weeks away from a national election scheduled for March 2021. Minister Yair Lapid, welcome to Battlegrounds. I especially appreciate you joining us weeks before a national election in which you are one of the lead candidates. It's great to see you. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Hey, I remember when we first met as COVID-19 was sweeping across, across the world for coffee in, in Tel Aviv only a year ago. You were also campaigning in another national election and, and you're, you're a centrist candidate in a political environment that seems increasingly polarized and personalized. We know a little bit about that in the United States, but I wonder if you might explain to our viewers how you've seen and experienced the evolution of Israeli politics in recent years and describe the agenda that you and the, and your party have taken on in this election. Well, is this the evolution or the explosion? I'm not sure. Uh, we, we, I mean, it seems like, especially when you're experiencing it firsthand, like we are in, we became Italy of the 70s of some sort. It is, as you say, it's the fourth election within less than a year and a half. Um, um, no stability, uh, dealing with an international and a national crisis while dealing with uh, a, political, a political crisis. And it's all evolved to, into each other. Everything is evolving into each other. So we have a prime minister with three indictments for, for bribe and, and, uh, and uh, uh, fourth election and the, the, the epidemic. Um, and the whole thing, and of course, Israel has its has its own uh, usual problems, if you can call them usual, which is being this this island surrounded by hostility, largest terror organization in the world, Hezbollah up north, 150,000 missiles aiming at my house as we speak, um, uh, Iran uh, that has penetrated Syria now after the civil war or during the civil war. So all sorts, the, the whole thing combined, it makes you uh, um, look at, 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 at the coming election and ask yourself, can we afford have political instability in the midst of all this? And the answer probably is not, but still, yet we do. I guess the United States couldn't afford the instability and the kind of polarizing uh, vocabulary that was used, not to mention what happened on the Capitol during an epidemic, but people are people and, and tensions on tensions and, and uh, the kind of strong sentiment that politics uh, uh, brings to the table is always there. So it's not a great answer, but this is what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that you know, our, our ability to cope with the security challenges you mentioned obviously is directly connected to our strengths as, as nations, right? And, and our common identity as peoples and, and our confidence, right? Confidence in, in who we are and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. 
as you mentioned, it was a heck of a year, you know, 2020 coming into 2021 in the United States and in Israel. Do you see the light at the end of the tunnel domestically in Israel now because you're, you're leading the world in terms of per capita vaccinations, for example? And I want to really I want to talk about these these security threats. But but what's your domestic agenda look like in terms of recovering from you know, the pandemic and, and the recession associated with the pandemic? Well, let me say one thing that might be a bit comforting because we, we, we started with some sort of a bleak uh, sentiment. There is a reason why the United States with all its problems and, and all the chaos of the last couple of years is the strongest nation on earth. There is a reason why is it that Israel with all its problems, with all the chaos of the last year and year and a half is still the strongest country on the Middle East and, and uh, uh, still hanging there uh, and, and you know what, creating new things. And the reason is the problem and, and, and the strengths are coming from the same source, which is the power of democracy, the power of, of, of uh, a society that is restless in a good way sometimes, in a bad way sometimes, uh, of people who are free, independent, have uh, um, the ability to think for themselves with, with, with governments stable or not stable, which are basically democratic. So the power of democracy and the problems of democracy are both de being demonstrated uh, uh, through the last year. And since it's a year on steroids, uh, uh, the, the, the pros and cons of, of, of democracies is also on steroids as, as we speak in both our countries. So, you know what, this, we have this thing that always identify, we identify th these days as well. And I think uh, what we, we see, what seems to be wrong is also what seems to be right. I was a couple of years, I don't know, a year and a half ago in the, when, when there was the first impeachment uh, hearing, I was in Washington, I was interviewed there by my friend Jeffrey Goldberg who asked me about the Israeli politics. And I said, you know what, the only good thing that is, to, uh, that is happening in, on the United States right now is that you don't get to laugh at us anymore. So I guess we don't get to laugh at each other anymore. We just have to deal with, with the problems that we have. You know, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think we should actually be confident and, and, and actually take time to celebrate the fact we do have a say in how we're governed. That's not the case you know, in a lot of places in the world. And, you know, we are sovereign states that can, that, in which the, the people, the people are, are, is where sovereignty rests. It's kind of was the radical idea of our revolution. You know, of course, a sovereignty issue for you that's right, you know, that's, that's uh, top on your mind every day is the future of the, the Palestinian people and, and, uh, and, and the refugee status of, of, of the, the Palestinian people since 1948. There have been a lot of, of developments there, but it seems like the same problems uh, still exist. These intractable problems associated with, with right of return, you know, the future of, of East Jerusalem now. And, and, uh, and I just, I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, on how, how you, what, what your vision is uh, for the Israeli-Palestinian issue set. Is there a path to enduring peace? I know Israel's very concerned about security, based on the lesson from Gaza, right? Where they're after the, the return of, of, of Gaza to the Palestinian Authority, the Hamas takeover, and how Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and, and their, their Iranian sponsors uh, pose a, a threat in the South, like the, the threat you face from Hezbollah, which you already mentioned. Uh, wh how, how do you see the Israeli-Palestinian issue? And, and what, would you, what would you propose? 
Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I totally agree with you. We are a bit post-traumatic from what happened with the disengagement in Gaza in 2005, because we did everything the world has ever asked us to do. We left. We, the army left, we, 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 we withdrew from, from Gaza. We told them, okay, you can self-govern now. Uh, we even left them with 5,000 greenhouses for them to start to build an, uh, an economy. And we said, okay, we're out. And instead of building an economy, instead of uh, uh, try, start uh, a nation building, they have elected Hamas, a, terror, a fundamentalist Islamic terror organization to power, elected them. And ever since fired more than 15,000 missiles over Israeli citizens, children and, 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 and uh, the elderly. So uh, the Israelis looked at that, this and said, okay, so we have to be more careful. And I have to put, to add to this, the fact that in, even in the Palestinian Authority, uh, President Abbas was elected for four years and this was in 2005, which is 16 years ago. So there's no, uh, we've started with the pains and glory of, of, of democracy. There's no pain and no glory. Uh, there is no democracy, neither in the Palestinian Authority, that is now trying to take a very uh, uncertain step towards, towards uh, um, an election next year. There's, of course, no democracy whatsoever under the Hamas ruling in, in Gaza. So, um, we asked ourselves, let's say we'll do the same as we did in Gaza in, in, uh, in the West Bank. Are we going to have missiles aiming at our airports in our Tel Aviv and Jerusalem? Are we going to be under the same threat? So, so this is the first thing to be taken into consideration. The Israelis, the majority of Israelis, even now, uh, will tell you while they're being polled that they support the idea of separation from the Palestinians under the two-state principle. Um, but they say, we want to make sure this doesn't become a, a terror base for people who are attacking us. So uh, I, I think when we've met, I told you that there is a basic difference between the way the Israelis look at the conflict and the Palestinians are looking at the conflict. The Israelis look at the conflict through their fear of terror, which is justified. Thousands of Israelis died throughout the years from terror attacks, from suicide bombers, from, from uh, explosions of, in, in buses and, 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 canyon, and moles. The Palestinians are looking at this through the lens of humiliation, of, of national pride, which, which I understand and accept. This, these are very different point of views. So where are we going from there? My answer is, unlike the Israeli right or extreme right, I do believe we have to take the path of the two-state solution. And if, if I will be fortunate enough, fortunate enough to form a government, this is the, the, the we're going to go there baby steps very carefully. Unlike the Israeli left, I don't think there is a possibility of, in the, in the near future at least, of uh, uh, an, an agreement which will end the conflict because everybody was speaking in the language of end, end of conflict. I was part of the negotiation team during the Obama years, the President Obama years, uh, uh, opposite uh, uh, Secretary Kerry, and everybody was talking about the end of conflict. I don't see uh, uh, a real possibility for the end of conflict because of the two reasons you've mentioned. 
the Jeru- I mean, Jeru- Jerusalem is not to be divided because it's our holy capital. And just for the same reason, I don't know, Washington will not, will not be divided and half of it will be given to, to Canada or, or, or Mexico. And on the other hand, there will be no right of return because we will not le- le- allow uh, millions of Palestinians to, to, to enter Israel and end uh, the Jewish majority and the Jewish identity of the, this, the country. So where are we going from there? We are going, uh, or I want to go through uh, uh, a regional conference, if you want me to elaborate on this, uh, I will, uh, towards two states with a conflict between them on Jerusalem and the right of return. And we're going to say the conflict is here to stay for a while. We have waited to come back to Jerusalem for 3,000 years. The Palestinians can wait uh, uh, to get start the clock now uh, on them. So, but, but they will have self-recognition. They will have self-governing. There will be two states. One of them, a stronger country with an army. One will be demilitarized because it's the only way to prevent it to be, from becoming a terror uh, 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 a, ter- a territory for terror, uh, but we need to go there because uh, it's the right thing to do uh, um, on human basis. It's the right to, it's the right policy to take, and I don't want to govern uh, uh, three million Palestinians in the West Bank and two million Palestinians on Ga- in Gaza forever and ever because it's not uh, responsible to my. It's not the responsible behavior towards my my children. I want to make sure that when they grow up, the conflict will be over or almost over. So this is the basic uh, structure of what I think, uh, where I think we should go. Well, I think you've, you've laid out a, a long-term view, which I think is so important here, because if you don't have that long-term view, you can make decisions in the short term that force this dilemma that you described onto you, right? This dilemma of how to remain a Jewish democratic state, maintain that identity, as well as sustain to some degree the prospects for a two-state solution. And, you know, I, I thought, I wonder if I might ask you about, um, about this, the outside-in approach to, to enduring peace between, the, between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. You know, there's been, there's been, there's been a, lot of, uh, a lot of changes in the region, obviously, uh, with the Abraham Accords. I think, you know, it's, it's not often... We get good news from the Middle East. When we do, we might we should take a minute to celebrate it. And you know, the, the Abraham Accords, of course, included the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, later Sudan and Morocco. It seemed to me to reflect a recognition that the security and economic interests of those countries aligned with Israel, particularly in connection with the threat from Iran. And so I'd love to hear your assessment of the Abraham Accords its effect on Israel's security and, and security in the region broadly? Well, first of all, I, I want to uh, elaborate a little about what you started with, which is the threat on Israel, on Israel's identity. So here's the thing. Um, if we'll do nothing like we did in the past decade or so, for, and it doesn't matter whose who's, who's fault is it, even though it does, uh, sooner or later, the Palestinians will come to us and say, okay, we realize you're not going to give us a state, at least let us vote. If we say yes, we're not a Jewish state anymore. If we say no, we're not a democracy anymore. And eventually we're not, we're not going to be both. So we have to move forward. And you are right. Uh, uh, the Abraham Accords are actually the way to move forward. One of the problems the Palestinians always had was they, their fear that if they will 
give up on, on uh, what is known as pan-Arabic uh, interests, Jerusalem, holy places, uh, um, uh, Mount, Te Mount Temple, uh, uh, um, the entire Arab world will be angry at them. Because of the fear of Iran, there's been a shift in powers in the Middle East, and you're right, we're, we're now uh, uh, opening uh, rapidly, actually, the relations with uh, the Gulf states and then Morocco. So here, there were two approaches towards that. One of them was saying, okay, we got rapprochement uh, with those countries without paying any, any price on the Palestinian uh, uh, issue. Mine is, that's an opportunity. And anyway, uh, um, if, you are, if you have uh, that kind of, of relationship now with the Gulf countries mostly, and the Gulf countries are sponsors of the, in, in many ways of the Palestinians, you can use this in order to put some pressure on the Palestinians to move forward with a negotiation. So you said, uh, I, I spoke about the long-term uh, uh, result I'm looking for, or I'm seeking. On the short term, the most important thing is of course, to be uh, back at the table, discussing things. And we can now have, this is not exactly outside in. Uh, uh, I mean, it was outside in when it was uh, negotiated by um, the American envoy, the EU, uh, the UN. When it's a Middle Eastern uh, uh, round table, I think it has better chances. I've, I'm speaking about the possibility of a regional co uh, conference since 2015. And now it's a better time and uh, better opportunities to put everybody, the Middle East around the table and start discussing the Palestinian issue with the support of the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia uh, should lead this uh, with Egypt. These are the two uh, main powers telling the Palestinians, listen, complaining and victimizing yourself is not a strategy. Telling the world that uh, uh, um, uh, you, you suffer is not a strategy. Moving forward, being proactive, discussing possibilities and understanding this is not a zero sum game. It's not like the Palestinians are going to get everything they ask for. It's not like the Israelis are going to get everything they ask for. It is a negotiation and you have to negotiate. And while you negotiate, you understand you're not going to get everything you, you wanted uh, in the beginning. And there are now enough powers in the Middle East to start carefully discussing this with the Palestinians. And I think this is, this is, this is a, a, a move on the positive direction. You know, I think this is going to be the value of the, the Trump administration 2019 peace proposal, right? It's something you can put on the shelf and pull down when it's time to have a discussion about what chances of a two-state solution remain and are acceptable to Israel in connection with those security concerns you mentioned. So, of course, as <laughs> nobody should get their hopes up on this, right? But, but I think that uh, that, that the approach that you're taking to initiate conversations, to continue to look for opportunities. The other aspect is we didn't talk about is obviously the fragmentation, which you already discussed of Israeli politics and the difficulty in getting any kind of an agreement uh, through, through, uh, you know, through the Knesset, but then also the, the fragmentation of the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian Authority, the weakness of the Palestinian Authority. So there are lots of obstacles. So let's talk about more problems then. How about, how about um, 
Israel's security along its borders, right? The, the state of Lebanon is in collapse due, I think, to this corrupt and ineffective governance, as well as Iranian subversion uh, for so many years uh, through, through Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, some argue that Hezbollah has been weakened as more Lebanese become aware of, of the organization's corruption, the subservience to Tehran, the way that Iran has used Hezbollah cynically in, 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 uh, in, in Syria. Um, but the group is, pers is pursuing precision rockets. You talked about the number of rockets, but I, I know what is, is a concern to you is, is these precision rockets. As we know from 2006, the situation along that border can escalate quite quickly. And then the Syrian civil war continues, right, with, with Iran trying to threaten Israel with the proxy army uh, that is enabling the Assad regime's serial mass homicide of the Syrian people. Uh, I, I, we've been watching the, the, the strikes, IDF strike, Israeli Defense Force strikes into Syria. They're almost becoming routine. Um, and so how do you view the situation along your borders in Lebanon, in Syria? What work can be done to stabilize the situation on your borders, to weaken Hezbollah and improve uh, Israel's security? Mm -hmm. Well, to st I'll start with Lebanon because Lebanon is a perfect example. This, this connects us to what we've the, uh, started the conversation with, uh, the dangers of an incoherent two-nation state. Um, one state for two nations, or, or two, actually in Hezbollah's case, it's three or four. In, in Lebanon's case, it's three or four. Lebanon is... For all practices, for all practical purposes, is not even a country anymore. I mean, it's it's the unemployment rate is unbelievable. The the economy is not functioning. Um, um, they don't have a, a, a functioning government now for for almost a couple of years. Um, the the Hariri family is coming and going back forth. Michelle Aoun is there. I don't want to go into the names because you know the majority of people don't know them, and and they're right not knowing them because it's going to change uh, uh, so fast. And so Lebanon is the example, the perfect or more, most terrible example of what happens to a country that is A, that lets the Iranians invade it with not only with powers, with uh, uh, physical or military power, but also with money and influence and, and, and uh, proxies. And B, that doesn't have a coherent identity uh, that, uh, in a way, is is may everybody's obliged to. So um, and it's terrible. And I think Israel should do its best behind the the scenes to help uh, uh, the Lebanese because they're suffering. And if somebody's, if your neighbor is suffering, whether or not we are in a formal uh, state of war with them, when your neighbor is suffering, you should do your best to help. Um, I welcome the fact that uh, President Macron of France went to Lebanon, offered his help, offered his negotiating uh, skills. But as long as the Iranians are there, there will be no peace in Lebanon. And as long as the Iranians are Syria, there'll be no peace in Syria. Iran and people have to remember this uh, for religious region, reasons is unstabling the, area, the, the region in purpose. This is what they want to do. This is their main, this is the idea, this is the, 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 the agenda. They're saying we will instable it, we'll make sure it stays unstable, and then from there, the revolution will evolve. Uh, there will be no revolution, there will be just 
blood and chaos and death and terror, but that's their main idea. And this is what they're doing in Syria. You're right about what we're doing in, in uh, um, uh, formally and informally in, in, uh, in, in, in our northern border is making sure there will be no Iranian invasion. We call it here in Israel, the WBW, the war between wars. It's not a war. It's not, not a war. It is, it is just a, a very uh, um, dangerous invasion of Syria through money, through foreign forces. And not only foreign. You, say, you, 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 you said that you're, you're right. The majority of the powers Iran has, in, Iran has injected into the area are foreign. But there are Iranians in Syria as well. And uh, um, this is part of what we're dealing with. And they are there and they want to stay there. And they're investing money. If you look at uh, what was published in the foreign press about the, the recent attacks in the T4 airport, it, the, the, the people who were, hurt, who, were, who were hit there were Iranians. They were not proxies. Um, Russia is, of course, also in the area uh, using mostly its... Uh, uh, um, political skills trying to negotiate some sort of, of, of peace in Syria. Um, we, we have a mechanism with Russia trying to make sure that uh, there will be no uh, Russian planes or soldiers will be hit uh, by our activities there. It's chaotic, it's complicated, but the source is simple. The source is Iran and Iran only. So this is on what is happening on, on the northern side. Uh, of Israel, I welcomed, you mentioned the, 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 the doings of the Trump administration. One of the best things they, they did was, I think you were in, in office at the time when, I, when they, they recognized the, uh, the Golan Heights. Were, were you at office? Yes, when, yeah, and I, or I just left. The decision was already made when I left. Uh, and and uh, the administration had, met, had recognized Jerusalem uh, while I was still National Security Advisor as yes. well. One of the one of the most emotional moments. I, I sat there in the ceremony with tears in my eyes. The fact that the United States has recognized Jerusalem finally and moved the embassy was was was. I mean, we were blessed to to live in this time. And also, I worked very hard uh, and discussed this for years with a lot of my American friends. So for me, it was also a blessing when the Golan Heights were rec was recognized. Israel's sovereignty over the the Golan Heights. So these were great moments. Well, we, and I'm not sure about the entire uh, uh, Trump plan. Um, uh, what, is, it, is it feasible right now? But at least the, the ideas are still there and needs to. And, and it's a good thing they were implemented. You know, Yair, what, what I am most concerned about these days is the Iran policy, right? And, and you already mentioned, we, we can't forget the ideology of the revolution, right? And, and we can't forget that Iran has been waging a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States and the little Satan, Israel. And, and I, you, you put this brilliantly, but it really, I think what Iran is doing is they're trying to keep the Arab world perpetually weak by keeping them enmeshed in conflict so they can apply the Hezbollah mo model broadly to the region, uh, pursue their hegemonic influence in the region, push the United States out, and then threaten Israel with destruction by placing a, a proxy army on Israel's border. And you know what, I, what I'm concerned about is the, the Biden administration coming in and, and rekindling this conciliatory approach to Iran, you know, because they put forward the shop window of Rouhani and Zarif, right? But it's really all about the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and the Supreme Leader. 
And so what is your assessment uh, of, of the threat to Israel, not only what, about, through what they've been doing for 40 years, but by pursuing a path to a nuclear weapon? And then and what do you think are the best policy options uh, for Israel and, and the United States to work together to address this problem of the four-decade-long proxy war, but also to block Iran's path uh, to the most destructive weapons on Earth? Yeah, you know, I was watching television the other day and there was one of those demonstrations in Tehran. And they, like always, they were burning American and Israeli flags. And suddenly it occurred to me, where are all the flags are coming from? Is there a factory in Iran of American and Israeli flags that, I mean, they've been burning American and Israeli flags for three decades, four decades now, and they still have so many flags. So I'm wondering... Where do they get the, the flags? And, and uh, uh, probably the serious answer is that like every revolutionary movement, the Iranian leadership feels that if they won't move forward, if they will not move forward, they will die. Like sharks. They say the sharks, if they stand still, they die. And uh, they'll do... They're still doing and they will do everything they can in order to have what they, what they call the Islamic bomb, which is nuclear weapons, and to export terror throughout the world, the United States, and, of course, the Middle East. Now, when, when uh, my friends in the, in, the, in the Senate and Congress asked me what I, re- what I think is the real policy of Iran towards Israel, I always tell them, you know what, I believe the Iranians just listen to what they have to say and what they have to say, what, what uh, uh, um, Khamenei, the, the supreme leader, has said is we want the total destruction of Israel. This is what we want. There are only two states in the UN in which one is saying out loud that its, it's national interest is the total destruction of the other, and these are Iran, Iran and Israel. So I believe them, and nuclear power is the, is the destructive power they need. So here's what I think we should do. First of all, we should have both the United States and Israel a basic principle, and the basic principle is there will be no Iranian nuclear power no matter what. There will be no Iranian bomb no matter what. If we need to use military force, we'll, need, we'll use military force. If we can use di- diplomacy, we'll use diplomacy. If you can use sanctions and, and, our, uh, joint, and the, the words, the globe's economical power, we should use that. But the sh- the, we cannot afford a nuclear run. I mean, this means the world will never be safe ever again. So this is, this is the basic principle. Now, what, what, are, what is the best way to deal with it? There are three possibilities. The best is the right deal with Iran. The right deal means um, no enrichment, no centrifuges. Uh, the right deal includes, which the former JCPOA didn't include, includes uh, uh, Iran's uh, uh, ballistic missiles and includes, in, includes better supervision because the supervision uh, um, of the former agreement uh, is not sufficient, includes a better sunset provision, meaning uh, a, way, a better way out from this agreement to the next agreement. So what we need is a good agreement. The best way to deal with it is to have a good agreement that will be 
uh, supervised, that will be efficient, that will do the job, do the work. Uh, if this doesn't work, if, if, there, if we cannot negotiate, if the United States cannot negotiate a deal like this, so the second best uh, option is no agreement, tightening the sanctions. That's the only way to bring uh, uh, the Iranians back to the table. Let me remind you, the JCPOA was signed after the Obama administration tightened the sanctions like never, be sanctions like never before. This is why the Iranians came to the table to begin with, because they were desperate. So we need to bring them to this uh, kind of desperation that will bring them back to the table. And the worst option of the three is a bad agreement, which is what we had. So I think President Trump was, uh, uh, did the right thing, uh, uh, tearing down the, the, the agreement. And, and I think we should, uh, what the Biden administration and the Biden administration is, there are skilled people there, Biden himself, President Biden himself, of course, is, has, has sat in, uh, he was the head of the Foreign Committee of Senate for years. Anthony Blinken is, is a very skilled man. I think they have the right uh, people that, that, will, that understands uh, we need a better agreement. I think who, I mean, I mentioned him about Lebanon. I think President Macron in France has already, he's catched the idea of a better agreement as a, as a, as a way of, of, of uh, uh, cutting through the, this, this, this uh, Gordic uh, tie. And, uh, and this is where we should move. Going back to the agreement to the JCPOA as it was, is a bad idea, is a dangerous idea. It's, it's only allowing the, the Iranians do what they do best, which is deceiving, lying, uh, and and uh, and keep on enriching enriching uranium while telling the world what like you said all the nice things the world wants to listen to. Yeah, I, I hope the administration does take the approach of forcing the Iranians to make a choice. Right, make a choice between acting like a responsible nation and ceasing its permanent hostility to the United States, uh, Israel, the Arab states. Uh, or remaining to, uh, the, the largest state sponsor of, of terrorism. And, and I, I was encouraged by what T Tony Blinken said, the new Secretary of State, because in his testimony, which I'm sure everyone in Israel was paying attention to, he mentioned the missile program. He mentioned the sunset clause in the, in the, in the flawed nuclear deal. And he mentioned Ara uh, uh, Israel's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, security and Iran's uh, destructive campaign in the region. Because I do think... They're connected. If you give sanctions relief, you just give the Iranians more resources to intensify their proxy wars and, and to threaten Israel and, and continue the horrible violence that has led to a, hum a humanitarian catastrophe uh, in, in, in the region. I wonder if I could draw you out to, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, just, just, there was a long discussion in Israel's uh, intelligence community, as it was in the American intelligence community that, that I know you're part of, uh, on the interesting question, whether or not Iran is a rational player. I mean, we were discussing, it said, I mean, yes, they are fundamentalists. Yes, they are ultra-religious. Yes, they have uh, uh, what can be called a proactive religion, religion that has, has uh, a, a vision of where it wants to go. But are they rational players. And I think in both our community, uh, intelligence communities, the answer was yes. Yes, the Iranians are, they are fundamentalists, but they are also 
rational players, meaning they respond to threat, they respond to pressure, they will respond to uh, 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 a word, the United States, Israel, EU, whoever, that is telling them, we are not going to cave in to your uh, 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 negotiating skills. And they are very skilled negotiators because we are determined to prevent uh, uh, in all costs uh, an Iranian bomb. Yes, they are rational and therefore they will listen if somebody speaks loud enough. You know, I wonder if I might ask you to comment on, on U.S. policy toward the Middle East broadly, right? I, I, it, what I see is a pattern of us declaring over and over again, we're going to leave the Middle East. And we never really do. But just by saying that, we give space to other actors. You mentioned the role of, uh, of Russia. Right? And I, I describe what Russia is doing as Putin's Potemkin peace plan. Essentially, what he's doing is, is offering to the region, to Israel, to the Arab states, hey, guarantee Russian interests in a post-Civil War Syria. Keep Assad in power. And by the right way, write some checks to help, to help rebuild the country we helped destroy. And exchange, what we'll do is we'll work over time to reduce Iranian interests in a post-Civil War Syria. Of course, it's a lie because Assad is much more dependent on the Iranians uh, than, than he is on the Russians. But it, I think we give the Russians, just as an example, that space because countries in the region hedge against the U.S. disengagement. Uh, how do you see the U.S. policy toward the Middle East over the last you know, decade or so? And, and, uh, and what advice would you have for, for the Biden administration, uh, advice consistent with U.S. interests and with, with Israeli interests? Well, here's the thing. I mean, if there's only one thing in common to the Obama administration and the Trump administration is that, like you said, they wanted to leave and they couldn't. Um, and probably the, the pinpoint moment was, was the, the, the moment that American uh, uh, ships were going towards, towards the, the Syrian border and then left without responding to the use of chemical weapons. Um, and and um, like you, I listened to the new administration, the, uh, which is which is prioritizing now its attention. And uh, I've noticed the fact that they said, okay, climate number one, China number two, Iran nuclear deal number three, everything else is number four. And um, um, I think. This administration, and as, as I was saying, this is a skilled administration and I have hopes for this administration, uh, um, must be proactive in the Middle East. Um, as, I mean, what's the use of having a word superpower if it's not acting like one? And the United States has become the stronger nation in the history, history of, of, of the human race because of its it has the right ideas, it has the right proactivity, it has the right doctrines, and, uh, um, and it, had the, it had the right allies all around the world. I don't remember who, maybe it was uh, by, by President Biden who said that uh, Israel is the cheapest uh, carrier the United States have on, on, uh, uh, in the globe. I mean, we are cheaper than the Nimitz or the Eisenhower or all those others huge vessels. Um, so uh, uh, 
like always in uh, i mean foreign policy is a complicated thing that that is trying to reach simple uh, 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 causes or, or goals and what we need in the middle east is a move forward on the palestinian issue we need to form a very solid firm axe against uh, uh, iran's terror and and ambitions or, or, or and we have to make sure that uh, uh, you didn't mention him i will uh, president Erdogan of of turkey his is uh, uh, megalomaniacs megalomaniac uh, ideas about himself and his role in the in the middle east will not uh, uh, fulfill itself so i mean there are issues that the united states eventually is going to be involved in being the superpower having interest having Uh, uh even in in a time in which the world in the united states is becoming more and more energy independent and uh, needs less and less uh, uh middle eastern oil um i, I think the united states is going to be involved because uh it always will be because it's the superpower of the world and i don't think the united states is is uh, uh, trying to step away from its uh, historic role so i think it should what what the new administration should do is work as closely as possible with our, the, is its allies in the Middle East. Israel is, of course, the first one. Um, there's a lot of, of talking uh, that needs to be done about uh, uh, human rights in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi, the Saudis are an ally and an important one. The Gulf countries are an ally. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea to weaken the Assisi uh, uh, um uh, regime or government in in Egypt uh in the name of of human rights i think what we need is stability in Egypt we being the largest arab world a uh, country so this these are the goals that i mean the end the end zone is is simple uh peace trade slow promotion of democratic ideas and for all these you need a strong and involved united states You know, I, I think one of the one, one of the approaches we take to the region sometimes is just to see it. America's viewed as a, it's just a mess to be avoided. But I would just say you know, two things here is, is that, you know, first of all, problems that 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 originate in the Middle East don't stay there. Right. We know that, especially with with the threat from jihadist terrorist organizations, but also this the refugee crisis centered on 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 the Syrian uh, civil war. And the other is that, hey, just when you think it can't get worse in the Middle East, it actually can. You know, so so I, I think that what's not what's necessary is not like a massive military commitment, but sustained engagement and a reasoned policy. And as you mentioned, working with our allies and, and partners in the region, which reduces costs on, on, on everyone as well. Hey, I, I thought you've been so generous with your time. I have one final question here for you. You know, the... You know, the, the Middle East is also it's a bit of an arena of competition, right? You've heard sort of the, the mantra in the United States, I think an appropriate one of, uh, of the need to focus on this return of great power competition. We spoke a little bit about Russia already, but you know, also the dragon in the room, so to speak, is China and China's role uh, in the Middle East using investments and, and economic relationships to extend its influence. Israel's been on the, the receiving end of that in, in, in strategic port facilities. As you look to the Eastern Mediterranean, you see uh, what China's been able to achieve in terms of influence significantly um, in, in, in Greece, for example, or in, uh, in Italy. 
Are, are you concerned uh, about Chinese influence in the region? What is the Israeli view of great power competition, and especially this competition that seems to be emerging now between China's promotion of its authoritarian mercantilist model and how that places our democratic uh, free market economies in, in a position of relative disadvantage if, if it goes unchecked? Well, you know what? I'm going to use the, this, this, this very smart question as an opportunity to speak about the fact that there are actually two Israels, not only one, because we have discussed all the problems. And yet I live in, in, uh, in a country I, I enjoy living in. It's not that I'm, I'm sticking to my, my, my homeland uh, uh, like somebody who knows the hurricane is going to hit. Israel is also, and that's, that's also Israel, and if not uh, more than most, the startup nation. Israel is also a fun place to be in. Israel is also the place I recommend, since you've been here, you know, I recommend you for your children and grandchildren to come to visit in, uh, uh, during, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the holidays. It's it's a what what, I, what did you bring? What? This, this is the book from my Salamation. friend Dan Senor. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the book. So so I'm and and and, you, and the food is good and the beaches are fantastic. I mean I mean the, the seashore is, is amazing and and it's it's a great place to 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 enjoy yourself and to raise your children, and therefore, it is attractive. It is attractive especially to countries like Iran, like uh, China and the United States, which are prone to technology. Israel is, is, is a very technological, uh, uh, is a, a technological smart power. And, and, and this, is, this is what makes us interesting. Uh, of course, the, our national interest is not to be caught in fire in this, this uh, ongoing uh, uh, tension between on trade and on, on royalties and on, uh, uh, between the, the, the United States and, and China. If we need to make a decision, we will always take the side of the United States because it's a great ally, because uh, we believe in the same ideas, because our democracies are so close together. The Chinese came over here as part of a, a bigger plan, what is known as the, the Belt and Bridge or Build and Bread or the Silk Road plan of, of this, this huge when they say we don't have to send an army, we can send money and and uh, and uh, uh, smart power. So they're using uh, um, an American idea of soft power, but sometimes better than Americans. And of course, uh, the administration is worried, and um, and maybe in, 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 the administration is in his right mind be worried. We're trying not to get caught. Uh, we're trying like. Uh, uh, small, smart survivors do uh, to benefit. Uh, but on, on, uh, if, if there's a real conflict, we don't ask ourselves on whose side we are. We are on the American side, always will be. Uh, uh, you are our friends, allies, uh, um, confidants, whatever uh, a word you want to choose. Um, and and we, we are listening and we, are, we, we have close discussions with this administration, starting with, and we, of course with the former administration about what is it exactly the Chinese are looking for around here. 
and what concerns the Americans and uh, uh, what are we willing and, 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 can, and what we, can we do about it uh, without hurting too much, if possible, our economy and, and prosperous relations with, with the Far East. Yeah, you mentioned one belt, one road. I think a way to think about it is, hey, a lot of times it's, it's a one-way toll road back, back to Beijing in terms of extracting technology and, and, and gaining you know, unfair uh, advantage and, and market share. Hey, Mr. Lappin, you've been, so, you've been so generous with your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd like to just give you the last word. What would you like to say to, to our viewers in, in the United States and, and around the world here on the, on the cusp of the national election in Israel? Uh, I am 57 years old. When my grandfather was 57, he was already dead for, I don't know, 15 years in a concentration camp. When my father was 57, he was the citizen of a very poor, smart, but poor, undeveloped country on the wrong side of the world. I live in a country that is smart, fun to be in, uh, startup nation, um, uh, interesting, intriguing, and uh, hopeful, with all its problems, hopeful towards the future. And my children are going to live in a much better country, hopefully, that will be in peace with all its neighbors. So even though, I mean, when you look at history in small pieces, it's always uh, uh, worrisome. When you look at history in, in long scale, and Jews tend to do so, then we're doing better than we used to do, and we have great hopes for the future. So I want to end our uh, joyful conversation with this optimistic view of the, way, the, the, the road our country is taking, and it will be much, even much, much better if I win the election next month. <laughs> Well, Mr. Lappin, it's been great, great to see you again. On behalf of the Hoover great. Institution, I want to thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a better future, a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, generals. Hope to see you soon. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.